Hey everyone, it's John Kerwin here and I'm really excited as this is my podcast called Open Minded. This podcast is interviewing inspirational people from all walks of life. You know, I want to give you the real stuff that's happening every day in the minds of these leaders, how they stay well in high pressure roles, how they build resilience in themselves, how they look after their people, and how can you invest in yourself and your people to do mental well-being well. So this is JK and this is Open Minded. So let's go. Welcome everybody. Really excited about today. I have an absolutely an amazing uh, woman who's a CEO of Beyond Blue, Georgie Harmon. Now, Georgie has been CEO of Beyond Blue since 2004. And the reason why we've actually never met, but the reason why I love her already is because she not only was the Director of Mental Health Australia and former Deputy and CEO of the National Mental Health Commission, Beyond Blue is Australia's most well-known and visited mental health organisation, focusing on supporting people affected by anxiety and depression and suicide. And you all know that I've been down that horrible path. So for me, um, to talk to someone so dynamic that's in a, a business, well, can you, Georgie, can you call it a business? It's more of a passion, isn't it? It's look, I, it's a it's a movement. It's a business. It's it's an entrepreneurial kind of organisation. It's all of it's all of those. It's community based. You know, our shareholders are the community, um, and we're there for we try and be there for as many people as we can. So I think it's all of those things. Um, yeah. How are you? Because you are in Melbourne, and I, I was just saying to you, I've got a friend of mine in Melbourne who's normally a level-headed man, but a few weeks ago he just wanted to create anarchy and do something. He was just at his wits' end. So, you know, my thoughts go out to you. But how are you coping? Oh, uh, you know, I think your friend is not alone. Um, I think. Look, I'm. I have my great days. I'm having a great day today. So you picked a good one, John. Nice. Um, but but two days ago I was weeping you know I, I it's been really really up and down and you know it's it's hard when you are apparently a leader and you've got to you know you kind of have to stay strong and and kind of have the answers and you know be upbeat and be positive and give people hope um, not just within your own organization but actually terms of the country you know well it's, it's hard it's hard because i cannot be all of those things every day because but where, where where did that bullshit come from and i call it excuse me if i swear we but but we've just seen in the last few days you know um our olympic athletes coming out and yeah. saying you know and everyone goes oh but she has been incredibly successful up till now why would anyone think that you don't as a CEO yeah. have doubts or so why do you think there is this you know I, I know that people have called you a superwoman and I'm calling you <laughs> one now but um we're incredibly vulnerable at the same time so why is there that perception and what's the difference between perception and actually the real ability to lead look I, I think I think it's changing John and I, I I don't know where the bullshit comes from like well it's deeply ingrained in in a cult in our culture especially in Australia where we love you know, we love success and we love, um, you know, we love, you know, being the best that we can be. And, and you know, we've got this kind of, we're the lucky country, right? Um, but, but I reckon the thing that I'm seeing more and more of, and it's something that I've lived and breathed since I've been in leadership positions or I've tried to anyway, is that 
I can I can be no, no one else but Georgie Harmon. And Georgie Harmon is made up of a tapestry of, of failure and success and insecurity and, you know, and lessons. Um, and I try and bring all of that into my work every day and how I connect with people. And I think people are expecting different things of their leadership now. They are expecting vulnerability. They're expecting candor. They're expecting um, uh, signs of 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 despair and uh, but also and but also hope. Um, and I and I think you know for me, there's as a collective, our superpower as a collective at a community level is is connection and social support. That's all we've got right now. <laughs> And that looks very different for many of us, especially those of us in Australia who are in lockdown at the moment. But at an individual level, I reckon vulnerability is our superpower. I was um, just saying, I think, what, what was the biggest, what was the biggest disillusionment, if that's a word, probably isn't, but it is now, um, when you went from maybe middle management to CEO, what was the biggest thing when you went, oh, I didn't, I didn't sign up for this? Oh, you know, I joke sometimes and say my job would be really easy if it wasn't for people. <laughs> you know, because because people are, are complex and people are brilliant and people are, are hard to work with sometimes and people are complex. Um, but that's what also, you know, that's the that's the stuff that makes, you know, everybody's job difficult sometimes, but it's also the thing that brings great joy into your job. Um, but I think I think the weight of responsibility and the loneliness sometimes of mm you know, being in these really senior positions is the thing, the thing that gets to me sometimes. And I've, you know, my tendency is to want to make everything good for people, mm. to, to, to solve people's problems and to, I hate it when people around me, um, especially, you know, my direct team are, are struggling. I want to, I want to make things better for them. I'm, I'm a rescuer, you know? So um, you've, you've got a, you've actually got a goal. This is really interesting for me. You've got a goal of actually helping and um, please correct me if I'm wrong, but in New Zealand by tonight, a New Zealand male will be dead by tomorrow night, a New Zealand male and a female will be dead. Eight suicides in Australia per day, eight attempts, right? So that's, that's your business of trying to change those stats. And that's why you are a superwoman. But how do you actually create a work environment for your 200 and I, and I i was listening to one of your podcasts the other day i believe about to be 250 because although we don't want it to be it's a growing industry right mm. how do you look after them and how do you lead because sometimes we we i, I always say when i'm breaking my own rules or not practicing what i'm preaching when i start to get unwell yeah sure. so we're delivering we're trying to deliver something but also you got to keep it indoors as well yeah, I mean, so so just back to those numbers, it's actually nine suicide deaths a year, a, a day in, in Australia now. It went up, it went up about 18 months ago. And it's a shocking number. Um, yep. Two and a half times the number of people who die on our roads every day, you know. Um, so so look, it is a it is a weighty responsibility. Um, the way I support, try and lead and support my staff is to actually, again, just be me. And to try and inspire and motivate and to be clear about our purpose and the things that I think are really important. Um, and there's three things that I say to um, our people who come to join our team. I try and meet with our new starters as soon as possible after they join the team. And I talk about three things that are really important to me. If, if you can come to work every day and give it your best, 
And some days that's going to be 130% because you're flying. And some days it's going to be 30%. As long as you can end the day going, I gave it everything I could give at this time, then I'm happy. And if you can approach that challenge, always remembering who we work for, it is those 3 million Aussies who live every year with depression and or anxiety, and it's those nine families who are bereaved by suicide every day, then, it, then your focus is clear. The second thing I say is have fun. I want you to have fun. We're in a very serious business, um, but the moment we take ourselves too seriously, I think we lose the magic. And the third thing is I want you to be curious. I, curiosity is such an underrated quality and, and characteristic. Um, ask questions, stop me in the corridor and ask me a question. Be inquisitive and don't limit that to the boundaries of your job description. You know, get to know your organisation and your colleagues and the work that they do and challenge us. Um, so those are the kinds of sort of, you know, and I, and I kind of, you know, I have this thing, I've got 100% strike rate. Everybody that I've said those three things, can you do that for me as your CEO? Everyone said yes. So that's pretty good going as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Um, but look, I guess, you know, and again, through, throughout last year, I learned a lot about myself and my leadership style. I learned that I cannot have control all the time, that I do not have all the answers. I cannot fix the unfixable. Um, I learned that, you know, and, and it's something that I try and practice, but again, I fail at sometimes is self-care. If I do not have my own oxygen mask on first, and if I'm not doing as well as I can possibly do, I cannot be the best leader for the organisation. I cannot be, you know, uh, um, we cannot achieve, you know, what we what we set out to do for the community. Um, I've had to, I've learned the importance and power of communication and storytelling. And now that is a fundamental part of the stuff we do every day at Beyond Blue. But within our organisation, storytelling became so important as we all sat and looked at each other in these little boxes on our, on our laptops. And I told my stories. I, I put out very regular video messages of me mucking around at home or, you know, with my dog or doing a jigsaw or, and, and actually talked about the days that I was doing really well, but also talked about the days that I wasn't doing really well. Mm. Um, so, so I think, I mean, those are some things. And I also think it was a lesson I learned really early on in the pandemic was um, everybody's experience is different. Mm. And it's highly contextualized to their family situation, their living arrangements, um, you know, where they're, they're where they're located, how much broadband, you know, they've got, you know, a whole range of factors. Um, and you have to make it really contextual. Um, and, and I guess the, the other thing I learned was I cannot solve people's problems. All I can do is to create the frameworks and the and the culture that helps them to help themselves and to support one another. And, and I tell you what, our staff, the best solutions that we gave, that gave the people the biggest lifts and the biggest boosts and, and laughter were the ones that the staff came up with themselves and drove themselves. You know, we've got the dogs of Beyond Blue, we've got Dancing by Myself, you know, these, these, these little clubs that they've formed online um, where they just are ridiculous and hilarious and really inspiring. And they've kept people going. I think often when people talk to me about how I went from just surviving to thriving, when I started this journey, I didn't think that it was simple. I thought it'd be complicated, but mm -hmm. laughter 
something to look forward to. The little things in life is actually how you stay well. But if you had told me that when you know I was on antidepressants and wanted to jump out of a window, yeah. I wouldn't have believed you. I thought it was more complicated. And sometimes my mind would want the complicated answer instead of I say it can't be that easy. Breathing's yeah. going to help me. But I think the interesting the interesting thing for me is um, I wanted to discuss a little bit about um, ambulance at the bottom of the cliff, mm. fence at the top, and bringing that fence back. It seems to me that during the pandemic of COVID that the governments have been incredibly agile, like you'd yeah. have to be as a CEO, changing all the time. Um, they've broken some of their own rules, taken a whole lot more risks, and it's been really, really effective at, at mm. times. Um, but they still struggle to do that with mental health when that's a pen pandemic. 800,000 people committed suicide last year. How do we how do we, as I guess, opinion makers, people who work in this industry, actually convince the government that they need to be more agile in this space because it is a pandemic as well? Yeah. Look, I reckon in Australia that it was a, it's a kind of like a story of two halves, actually. I think right at the beginning, um, governments were really agile, actually. Um, you know, they we, for example, as a sector, we had been pounding away at the at the advocacy to to make telehealth available as part of our Medicare system. So where the public purse actually pays for access to psychological therapies. Why does that have to be face-to-face? -face? Mm. And of course, all of a sudden we were told it was too hard. The tech was too difficult. You know, GPs and psychs wouldn't embrace it. People wouldn't use it. Literally overnight, it became a Medicare item and it's now part of how we do business. Normal. Normal. And, and, you know, it works for people. It's convenient. They can have a, a se session with their psych on the way to the supermarket if that's what they choose to do, you know. Um, so I think, you know, there was great agility and, and really good support for mental health um, in those very early days. Lots of, you know, money surge funding for organisations like Beyond Blue so we could meet the up to 60% higher demand that we, we started to experience. Um, but I, and, and in the last few months, we've seen um, a number of really huge investments by our national government and also some of our state governments, especially here in Victoria, which have come out of major reviews of our system, um, a Productivity Commission report at the, at the national level and a, and a Victorian Royal Commission. So we've seen billions of dollars of new investment announced. And, and really, you know, quite exciting um, things, but it's, and that's great. Money is great, but it's how you use that money that's important. And still less than 2% of the total spend in, in Australia on mental health is spent on genuine prevention. Well, I think the, the interesting thing and another question for me is like, uh, we've had all these like reviews and commissions and all that sort of stuff. And the same old shit keeps happening. Yeah. Right. Um, so if you, and you have a deep knowledge of this, if you had those hundreds of millions of dollars, what, because I get asked all the time, New Zealand's so beautiful, JK. Why have got a high suicide rate? Australia's yeah. so beautiful, JK. It's the greatest, one of the greatest countries in the world. Why have got a high suicide rate? Yeah. And, and often I'll say, um, you know, I think it's a modern illness, but I also think when we have no knowledge, we don't get taught it in our schools. And also when you do reach out for help, the system is a little bit broken. Yeah. Now, how do we actually 
do two or three things that will, and I think it's going to take a generation, and I know that's really hard for me to say because we want it to be fixed tomorrow, but how do we, what would you do if you were now Prime Minister of Australia? I'd I vote for you, do, by the oh way. Oh, God, I would do so much. God, the power, right? Yeah, <laughs> and you get driven around in a nice car. Wow. So I'd just probably get on my bike. Um, look, I would, the first thing I would do is fix uh, the, 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 try and fix the, um, the dysfunction of our federated system. So we've got three levels of government in Australia. We've got the Commonwealth, we've got states and territories, and then we've got local government. And they all do bits and pieces of mental health reform. And those bits and pieces don't often connect. So um, part of the reforms that were announced a few months ago was they're gonna negotiate a new national agreement for mental health reform, where the Commonwealth and states and territories decide who's gonna spend money on what, what's gonna be important, blah, blah, blah. That is the key. If we can fix the, if we can finally get governments to agree on a long-term investment plan, who, which, which level of government is going to do what, they join up their funding and co-invest together so that there's not further fragmentation and little bits of programmatic funding. It's actually about people. And it's about governments actually throwing all of their money in a bucket and saying, these are the five things and we're going to throw everything at them and we're going to measure progress and outcomes as we go. And we're going to have an independent umpire that's telling us how we're going. These, you know, so that structural governance reform is, I think, going to be absolutely key in Australia. The second thing I do is actually start thinking much more creatively about workforce um, we tend to think about psychiatrists and psychologists, and that's really important. But what about peer workers? What about um, what we call coaches, so mental health coaches? That's something that's one of Beyond Blue's programs. These are people who live in local communities who receive clinical supervision, but just basically help people to kind of navigate what's going on for them, teach them CBT and skills that that they put in their toolkit that they have for the rest of their life and they basically we're seeing 70 percent plus recovery rates right it's, it creates local jobs why aren't we thinking more creatively about workforces and how they actually blend and work together um, the third thing i do is actually spend a lot more money on prevention the earlier we can get into kids and families who are particularly struggling with you know facing adversity the sooner we can really get this inculcated into schools and early learning services. Um, there's, the sooner we can intervene early in life, early in illness, early in relapse, that's where, again, the magic can happen. Um, and the last thing I'd probably do is to, you know, and this is something that we keep banging on about, but it just doesn't seem to bite. You can have, if, you, if, you, if you're homeless or living in insecure housing, if you're living below the poverty line, if you have no friends or family, social supports, you can have as many psychology appointments as you like. It's not going to sort yourself, you know, it's not going to help. So it's the somewhere safe to live, something meaningful to do on a date on a Saturday night. We need to deal with those social determinants. We need to deal with poverty. Um, because when people get lifted out of poverty, they they have better, you know, they, they, they have choices. Um, and, and they can live a contributing life. If someone has somewhere safe and stable and affordable to live, they've got an address to give someone to find a job, you know? The, um, 
you you were quoted, and I think this is. I mean, you and I speak the same language. I have a foundation now. We've built a program that's in the schools called Mighty um, in primary schools, teaching our kids mental health. Obviously, um, my other business, Mentimia, because I think the workplace is fundamental. It's like we say often: it's no use fixing the fish if the water's toxic. Yeah. And I think. The, the quickest way to get to 2 million, and I know you've got more in Australia, but we have 2,400,000 workers in New Zealand is actually creating a mental well-being um, environment at, at work. And I know you were quoted as saying mental health at work is not just a HR issue. So how do you see the workplace? Um, there's another stat too, and, and you've got you to take my stats with a grain of salt, Georgia, because there's JK stats and real stats, but... Um, <laughs> You know, I think we need 15,000 counsellors, psychiatrists and psychologists in New Zealand. I think we've got 4,700 yeah. or something and we need uh, and we can only educate sort of uh, 30 a year. So how what we know it's not just a HR issue. So how would you look at that in the workplace? What would you say to a workplace or a CEO hmm. leading well-being into the future? Oh, I'd, I'd say if you're not thinking about this and this is not part of your business strategy, you're losing money. You're losing good people, you're losing productivity, and actually you're not an employer of choice. And, and with workforce constraints that we've got, you know, that are even more exacerbated because of the pandemic, you know, you're going to be in a world of pain if you're not actually taking mental health in your workplace seriously. So, and it's a great investment for every dollar, Australian dollar that you invest in a mentally healthy workplace strategy, your average return is $2.30. So it makes good economic sense. So it starts with you. It starts with you as the CEO. If you are not walking the talk, talking about this openly, sharing your own stories, saying how important this is to you and your leadership team, investing in good mental health strategies, ranging from support services right through to, you know, good job design. Um, you know, mentally healthy workplaces are not places that have morning teas and ask everybody, are you okay? That, you know, invest in fruit bowls and yoga. It's, that, that, you know, lovely, but actually not going to make a bit of difference, quite frankly. Mentally healthy workplaces start with leadership. They're about culture, a culture where it's actually safe to disclose if you're struggling or if you've got a mental health condition. Um, it's about, you know, one in five Australian workers are working right now with a, with a mental health condition. It's not just about focusing on them. It's about focusing on the five in five. Um, it's, about, uh, it's about training of your, especially your people managers. It's about good systems and policies. It's about good job design and job clarity and managing workloads. All of these things are not rocket science. They're part of good business strategy. And, and you don't create a mental health strategy in the workplace that sits outside of your occupational health and safety practices or your business strategy. Integrate it. Make it part of everyone's business. Make it part of your leadership KPIs. Measure how people, measure people's levels of confidence in disclosure, for example. Measure how your staff rate whether or not this is a, a mentally healthy workplace. You know, the, the, it's good business strategy. And it's not rocket science, and it can actually be incredibly cheap to implement. At Mentimer, we 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 talk about putting it on your agenda, mm. putting it on your agenda. But I, I think the the other interesting thing that I wanted to talk to you about. So you're a high performer, right? And a lot of CEOs and business leaders say to me, "JK, 
you know, you've been in the All Blacks, you're running a business, but what about performance? You know, we're all going to end up hugging trees and shit, you know, and I'm going, <laughs> no, no. Um, but there's a real fear because, and, we, and, and, I, and look, all the CEOs out there that are listening, this is not by any way a criticism on you. It's just not something that's been in your business school. You go to Harvard, you don't learn this shit, you know? So what I'm saying is in the All Blacks, we used to have performance care. So, you know, the, how would you say to a CEO, how do you have that discussion about shit? You know, you've got to perform. You've also got to be great at what you do, but how can I care for you at the same time? How do you do that? Because it's the biggest question I get from CEOs because a lot of them do the, Hey, you got to perform, but hmm. they're scared to do the care. Yeah. Uh, so, so I think the two are not incompatible. Like I am, I am, a, I expect my staff to come to work, to give it their best and to perform to the best of their ability. We've got a service that we have to provide to the community. I, I expect a high level of performance and good quality work. Um, and the way that we're best able to achieve that is to make sure that we have got a supportive culture, that we've got um, good business systems that allow people to understand exactly what their role is how they fit into the into the strategy of the organization um, good manage good manager and leader support you know skilled people leaders um, and a good sense of, of teamwork so that when someone does start to struggle you pull together you jump in you kind of reallocate tasks um, and you get the job done um, the two are not incompatible and in fact if you have though that kind of culture and that kind of the, the balance of performance and, and outcomes with care and support, if you get that balance right, your productivity increases. You have greater loyalty in your staff. You have lower turnover. You actually attract great talent because you're known. People talk, right? When, when people apply for jobs, they call around. They say, hey, what's Beyond Blue like? You know, what's it like as a place to work? Is it toxic? Is it full on? It's, it is full on. Um, you know, people people do their their homework, um, and if you grow a reputation as as an organisation that chews and spits people out, you're not going to attract the best and brightest. Tell me what you would say then to a CEO who has traditionally been around the performance and not the kid, just because he doesn't care, just because he's been brought up. Um, well, probably my age, right? From fifty five to sixty five, middle aged white guy, we're getting pretty. Um, <laughs> pretty isolated and, and we're, we're old school stuff but how, what would you say to the CEO out there that wants to, to dip his foot in the water but is a bit scared how would you say to him look just do these three things or this yeah. is how you should start <clears throat> I think um, I think the first thing to do is to just take the step like just throw yourself into that abyss Ooh. Um, and give it a go. Think about how you, and look, it's something I did, um, oh gosh, five years ago, five, six years ago now. You know, I've always been a pretty open leader and, you know, wore my heart on my sleeve, but I experienced depression for the first time in my life a few years ago. And here I was, you know, CEO of Beyond Blue, turning up to work every day, going home, drinking a bottle of wine, you know, not sleeping, feeling like I was completely worthless you know, feeling like I was failing at everything. Um, 
And I was in a, a you know, big auditorium, probably 500, 600 HR professionals. It was a, on the Gold Coast, this big national um, conference. And I was talking about mental health in the workplace. And I was wanging on and this and that. And, and everyone just looked so bored. And I was like, oh, this is not going well. So I remember stepping back and I didn't plan this. I didn't think about it. I remember sitting at the lectern and gripping it and just then lifting myself up and saying, I actually just want to change tack and I want to tell you what's going on for me. And I told my story. And I remember a couple of my staff were sitting in the front rows and they were like, what is she what? doing? Yeah, that and was not on the agenda. It changed the room. It yeah. absolutely changed the room. And I talked about how I was feeling, what I'd experienced, what I was doing to sort myself out. And, and how the importance, how, the, how my work and the, the, the support of my workplace and my board and my colleagues um, were, the, were the reason why I started to realise that actually the mask that I put up was not working, people were seeing through it, um, but also they were the motivation for me. That was, work was, was a really big part of my recovery. And oh, that's that for me. That's fundamental, Georgie. Like we need to create. Like we do not bring our authentic selves to work, right? We need to change that because yeah. if you can bring your doesn't change how great you are. And this is what I say to people. This is not a weakness. This is this is a strength. So, but we and I guess as CEOs, the hardest thing for for you is and all your colleagues is actually that persona that you need to be superman whereas mm. it's exactly the opposite because your strengths are your strengths right that's why you get to ceo yeah my that experience and that storytelling made me a better ceo um and time after time after time after i tell my story i have people coming up and saying thank you you've made me realize you know i'm going to go and do this this and this or you know my brother or my sister or my partner or my dad um so it just it just breaks open that that uncomfortableness that we can't talk about this as leaders that we can't show our vulnerability because perhaps our boards or our shareholders are going to go oh or you know maybe we need to move them along um it's made me a better leader and it and for that moment even if it's for a moment when i tell my story it actually puts someone who's listening in that space of ref, of self reflection and it says to them, if she can do it, and if she can talk about it, maybe I can too. Um, that's that. I mean, it's really interesting because that's the advice that I give. I got. I, I wrote a book called Stand by Me. It was about how to parent um, mental health in the home because I was really scared about how to do that. Mm -hmm. And they said to me two things: sit down and have dinner every night, which is basically connection. That was pretty easy for me because I was married to an Italian. Um, <laughs> second, the second thing was show some vulnerability, John. And I'm going, yeah. oh, yeah. you know, they say, well, you don't have to cry the first night, you know. Um, yeah. And that's that's the advice I give to CEOs, show some vulnerability. Yeah. And it doesn't need to be as dramatic as yours in front of everyone, but, you, you know, that that it can just put, you, put your foot in the water and, and have a go. The, the other thing I wanted to ask was, um, obviously with Mentimeo, I'm pretty passionate about technology being, um, part of the future of mental health just because of the weight mm. of the services and the weight of the need so I know that you're pretty passionate about the future and and what it looks like for you so what's your idea of actually supplying outstanding service to anyone who needs it when they need it 
Oh, it's that's at the heart of our of our current strategy, actually. And we're we're going through a massive service and and support transformation, if you like. Like we we pretty much again, and I kind of did this throughout the pandemic and during lockdown. We we kind of broke the organisation apart and we're putting it back together, and it looks really different. And at the centrepiece of that is the idea that Beyond Blue is a big blue door. There's millions of Aussies that turn to us every year. And that big blue door can be a doorway through a community event. It can be a doorway at a, speak, at a school event where one of our amazing volunteer speakers is telling their story. It can be a moment on a website in the middle of the night. It can be on the end of a phone. It can be a web chat. It can be an app. Um, there's so many different entry points into Beyond Blue and we need to join all those together and we need to create a really great digital and online and face-to-face -face experience for people. Um, so wherever you come, whichever door you come through, there's always something on someone there that's helpful. And it, it actually, we, we use technology to create options for people to receive and connect with services and supports. Um, but we also allow them to tell us about themselves so that we can actually serve up options and content for them that actually is about, that has meaning to them. So, you know, if I'm a 65-year-old bloke, I don't want to be hearing about postnatal depression. Maybe I do because maybe my daughter is experiencing whatever. But, you know, we, we've got to be getting more personal. We've got to create a better experience for people. We don't want people to be clicking and having to go there and this and that and the other. We want it to be really integrated. Um, and behind the door, I don't care if it's a Beyond Blue service or product or a Lifeline service or product or a Headspace service or product. I want there to be something there that helps someone and that you don't need to jump between platforms to get to. So that's our big, audacious, hairy goal. Um, and we're, you know, we're starting the, the kind of research and thinking around that now. And, and hopefully, you know, in a while, we'll have something that feels very different for people. One of the things I talk about, and this, this is probably a, a difficult question for you to answer, but um, you're talking about Lifeline, Beyond Blue. What I noticed in New Zealand is because the funding is siloed, yeah. and um, amazing work together but the disconnection comes actually from the siloed funding and then you become siloed because you need to get that bit of money to do your work and so how would you ideally because one of the things that people talk to me about a lot when they've had a poor relationship with mental health it's mm. I explained this to one doctor but he couldn't talk to the other doctor so then I had to explain it again and that pissed me off and then I saw this person and then I didn't see the next person or I went into an environment and it was for the really unwell. And I, you know, there's all these disconnections. How do we actually connect together? Because all the people in this industry are amazing and they do yeah. genuinely care. And that's what I keep saying to people. People aren't making mistakes on purpose, you know, they care, but there seems to be this disconnect in mental health. Oh, totally. So, so just on the funding side of things, again, this comes down to structural reform. Like if governments fund the sector differently, at the moment, we're funded in a way that actually disincentivizes collaboration. It, for, it actually incentivizes us to actually do our own thing, to run our own race. <clears throat> um, and I, you know, and, and, and a lot of the time, funding is quite programmatic. I, I liken it to kind of feeding the chickens. You just throw a bunch of seeds in the air and you watch everyone squawk around it. Um, 
so if we can get the funding structures to look different, the sector's ready to collaborate. And in fact, we already are. Um, and I think, I mean, and again, like, let's come down to the pandemic. It was a very different experience for us. We were asked by the federal government here to very rapidly set up a dedicated coronavirus support service with, you know, specially trained counsellors with strong links to a whole range of supports and services ranging from financial counselling to, <clears throat> to, you know, youth services, um, family violence services. And we stood that service up in eight days and we had to make it digital first for obvious reasons. Um, and that was incredible. My team just did an extraordinary job. And they gave us $10 million to do that. And we said, we don't know if that's going to be enough. We don't know how long that's going to last. We don't know what the demand's going to look like. Um, and they just said, and I just said, but just trust me, like I'm going to stand something up in eight days. I don't know what I'm going to be able to stand up, but just give me the money and let me get on with it. And they did. They trusted us. And they, mm. they just said, over to you. And, you know, we, we, we stood a service up. And since then, we've iterated. We've added new channels. And one of the things that we've done with that $10 million is to actually go to some of our colleague organisations who provide fantastic services that we didn't want to replicate and that we actually thought could be really helpful for people. And so we've shared that funding. Um, we've done a great partnership with Lifeline and with a fantastic organisation that focuses on young people called Reach Out. Um, so when a young person comes onto the digital coronavirus service site um, and, and they, they see Reach Out's content, they don't see ours, they see, they see, because it's written for young people by young people. So, and then if we notice that they've looked at two or three pages that indicate that they might be thinking about suicide, they get a pop-up on their device that says, hey, we've noticed this, uh, we're a bit worried about you. Do you want to have a chat by text with a lifeline counsellor? Yes or no? Yes. Here you go. Boom. So these incredible pathways, digital pathways created, so it doesn't feel like for the person that it, you know, it's just completely seamless. Um, but there's three organisations that are working together behind the scenes to join up their services, and that's the future. And we were allowed to, to invest in those kinds of partnerships because governments let us do that. Um, and, and I didn't have to get tied up in, you know, contracts that, that required me to report, you know, every time I wanted to, you know, spend $2.50. Yeah, we have a, uh, we have an issue going on in New Zealand at the moment, S similar situation, very strong advocate, a friend of mine called Mike King. Um, and the government has sort of gone back to its RFP, you know, we, we, you, you need to apply, you need to do this. Mm. I, I sort of go, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to give Georgie the money, I'm going to trust her, and I'm going to come and knock on her door in eight months' time and say, well, how'd it go? Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and I, think that's, I, I think that's a way forward because all the other processes haven't worked and they're a little bit, you know, they're sort of a little bit broken in mm. that sense. So <clears throat> tell me... I'm always like to look at the silver linings and I know we've been very fortunate in, in New Zealand, but what, what has COVID taught you a as an individual, but, and then B as a CEO in the positive. Uh, it has taught me as an individual that I need to trust my guts. You know, that's really, it's really kind of, and that it's okay to not have all the answers but you need to take decisions and take them quickly with the best available information that you've got, move quickly, make, 
make clear decisions, communicate clearly, and then apologize later. Um, it's taught me as an individual that I need people. I need touch. I need um, my family who are all, you know, in the UK and I don't know when I'm going to see them again. It's, it's just reaffirmed to me the importance of love and connection and <coughs> friendship and family. Um, it's taught me the importance again of self-care. Um, and as a CEO, it's really exploded for me this, I thought I was a really quite, you know, open-minded and, and flexible thinker when it came, for example, about how we worked and, and where our people worked. Um, and, you know, we spent, so from March last year, we, we actually didn't have an office, we gave up our old lease and we were fitting out a new building in the city in Melbourne. So where there's a period where we actually, even if we could have gone back to work, we, we actually had nowhere to go to. So we from, from March to January, when we opened up the new office, um, we all worked from home, all virtually. And I was, you know, that was necessary. But I tell you what, I observed how people adjusted. And it was really tricky um, and, and exhausting and, and, you know, fractious and difficult but I tell you what my team have just been extraordinary in how resilient they've been and how adaptive they've been to those change circumstances productivity has not waned in fact it's probably increased and I can trust them to to do the right thing to work hard to produce good good results for the community um, and it doesn't matter where they work from so they do not need to, so, you know, my starting point when we started to open up was, I don't care where you work. If you don't want to come back into the office, don't. And that's, so we're really kind of trying to hold that position where, you know, work in the place that best suits the work that you're doing at that on that particular day. If it is collaborative work and it's really important that you connect with your colleagues, come into the office, come into the hub. We call it the hub now. Um, if it's quiet work where you need to think or, or indeed you've got family responsibilities, work from home. So we're really, we, we've just completely changed our, our policies around flexible working. And we've been really clear with staff that they, you know, there will be some times where Beyond Blue says we need you here. But at the end of the day, they can, they can in a sense, determine their own destiny. We've had incredible feedback from that. Where, you know, to start with, when we started saying all these nice things, they were like, yes, but do you really mean it? And how long is this going to last? <laughs> you know? And I think there's still a little bit of that. But, you know, I think they're starting to believe it, that we're serious about it. That product, as long as we get the job done, I don't care where they work, when they work, how they work, as long as they connect well with colleagues, connect well with community and, um, and you know, do the best they can. So what do you need, though? So, for example, one of the biggest challenges for CEOs all around the world at the moment, you know, was it the boss of Apple said, come back, and everyone rebelled, and <laughs> someone said, we're going to sell all our buildings. They went, well, where are we going? So um, how, as a CEO, do you go right? Because at the end of the day, you could end up paying a million dollars rent or $100,000 rent. So what what is that new future for you? I know you've just explained that you can mm. work where you want to, but A, what do you need? as a person, yeah. um, I, I'm still trying to work it out, you know, 
we're still trying to work it out at Mentimere as well. We're, we're, we're sort of, we're sort of um, getting there, but it is a difficult question for CEO, especially when there is a bottom line at, at, yeah. the, at the end yeah. of it. What do I need as a CEO? I need, I, uh, what do I need as a person? Um, I need to have that flexibility. It, it actually works really well for me to have the option to work at home a couple of days a week. I think I'm actually more productive. It depends on what I've got on under each, in each day. Um, but I want, I, you know, I want, I, I need that flexibility now. Um, I think going back and working in an office five days a week is going to be very challenging for me. It might not be in a couple of years time, but it will be for me right now. Um, I need, um, and, and as a CEO, I need for teams to be making decisions that are right for them and for the work that they're doing and the, and the projects that they're delivering to figure out as teams, how it's going to work best. Uh, you know, I can, I don't want to set a, a mand, a, you know, a directive to say you've got to work in the office two days a week. We may have to get there, but I don't think we will actually. Um, because I think if we're saying to people, this is the job that needs to be done, this is the time frame, this is the budget, this is the resources that you've got, make it happen, self-organize. Um, you know, they're figuring it out so far. Um, in terms of the commercials, though, it's tough. I mean, we've got this amazing new space, which we've actually designed quite by accident um, to be quite COVID friendly and quite COVID safe. It's there's no offices. Um, it's a big there's big spaces so we can, you know, keep the social distancing thing sorted out. Um, and we designed it so that we can bring other organisations in. Um, we can have community groups come in. Um, and again, you know, it's a challenge sometimes with COVID safety, but and we're not there yet. But that's, you know, that's our future. And, you know, we, we can look at subdividing, subleasing, you know, we've probably got more space than we need right now, but I, I'm quite comfortable sitting in that space at the moment because we just, it, there's so much uncertainty, um, but we are, it's ab absolutely a live conversation that we're having at the moment at, within my leadership team about what kind of space do we need and how much space do we need going forward. Okay, so we used to read productivity with those that are in the office at eight and leave at five. So we'd read productivity with our, with our eyes. And secondly, team culture has probably gone, well, pre-drinking and driving used to be the, you know, the barbecue on a Friday night and a few drinks. So where, where, do the, where does productivity now, how do you measure that? And B, how do you create a culture when you might not see someone for a month? Well, really interestingly, I mean, we've we're we're on a growth spurt, as you said. I mean, I've got a new leadership team that I recruited during lockdown last year. We we worked together for about six hours between lockdowns. Um, so um, we've we've not found those spaces and times to physically connect, and it's a fantastic team. You know, with a good team. So we've kind of made up new rules. Um, we have a, a weekly. Um, catch up where you know sometimes we have a glass of wine um, sometimes we have a glass of whiskey sometimes we have a glass of water um, but we come together at the end of a, of a week and actually just kind of tell stories and laugh and cry and gnash our teeth um, in terms of um, and broader culture I think teams and, and individuals are finding ways to still do that so we've got you know cups of tea time we've got you know, walking, you know, staff who live in the same neighbourhood or have been walking together during lockdown and things like that. So I think, again, like if you if you give people permission to figure out what works for them, they'll do it. Um, and I forgot what the second part of your question was. 
uh, culture. Oh, culture, yeah. It's it's. I think it's an opportunity for us to rebuild our culture, or to build a, or to change our culture in a way that's actually going to suit and reflect this really different way of working. Um, I, I I do think there is still a heightened level of anxiety in Melbourne, in particular, um, where people are worried about public transport. They're worried, you know, getting on the tram to go into to the hub. Um, but when they get there, and we all have to wear masks at work still, and that's hard for people. Um, so, but I think I think when people actually take those tentative steps, get on the tram, get on the bike, get on public transport, come into the office, and actually see their colleagues, you can see it lift them, and then it becomes infectious. That's probably a bad analogy to use at these times, is it? But, um, <laughs> but you know, they talk and they say, oh, my God, it was so good to be in the office and to see so-and-so and I haven't seen them for six months and I've met so-and-so for the first time. And the chatter gets out. And then the next day you see a little bit more, a few more staff come in. Um, you know, we're trying desperately to have a, a, a staff party that we've been had to put off about six times. And when we are able to do that in a COVID-safe way and we hope it's not too far away, um, that will be a magnificent moment where we will have I know so much fun um, but at the, mo at the moment we're you know we're doing culture differently we're creating new routines we're keeping the communications going we're saying to staff tell us what you need um, they're self-forming self-organizing and and we still have a you know again when I meet with our new starters I ask them you know how's it going how's your first few weeks been and and the thing that they, they always say is the culture is so amazing people are so lovely they're so welcoming they're so helpful um so you know I think we're doing okay uh, I think the next few months are going to be interesting but you know I, I'm eternally hopeful and and um, and positive about the future John cool so I've got a few personal questions for you so you know it meant to me I, I talk about my daily mental health plan uh, in, in the app, we call it the six pillars. So I'm just going to ask you what you do. Firstly, to chill. What do you do to relax and calm your mind and stay in the present? I um, cuddle my dog and do a jigsaw puzzle. A jigsaw puzzle. Wow. So yeah. I was so far ahead of the rest of the world with jigsaw puzzles during the pandemic. I've been puzzling since I was this high. Really? I love jigsaw. It's, it's, I find it, it's my meditation. I find it a very mindful activity. I can totally and utterly absorb myself in these tiny little pieces of cardboard and I can switch the rest of the world off. I find it very, very, very soothing to do a jigsaw. That's, that's awesome. You know what someone said to me the other day? You know, our mothers and our grandmothers and our aunties knitted for a reason. It's right. really mindful. It's click, 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 click. I me and my auntie Betty yeah. on click, 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 click. Right. They say it has the same effect as your jigsaws. That's awesome. How do you connect? Um, at the moment, um, I walk with friends. So, you know, throughout last year, without fail, I think we only missed a couple, handful of weekends every Sunday morning at 7.30 in the morning. I would meet with a dear friend of mine and we would walk for two hours. Um, and we talk and we'd share, you know, she's a CEO as well. And we just share how our weeks were going, the things that are worrying us, the things that, you know, we found joy in. And we've become so close, you know. It's beautiful. Um, so just things like that. Um, you know, I go to the gym, I 
you know, I'm going out for dinner with some friends tonight. So, you know, just those those things of and, and and the other thing is connection with family. So every morning, the first thing I do is I catch up with all the the chat on my family WhatsApp group. I share what what I've been doing, and at the end of the day, it's the last thing I do. So just those little new routines and and family zooms every Sunday night. And you look forward to that. I what do you do? What do you do? What do you do to be creative? I know you do your jigsaws, but what do you do to be creative? Or what are you learning that's new that gives you that wow buzz? Um, I've just bought a, a house. I bought a house, moved in uh, for four months ago, probably. And it's a great little cottage, needs a bit of work. So I, I've renovated a few houses in my life and I love knocking shit down and I love building shit and I love so last weekend I painted the bathroom and um yeah so I, I like doing stuff with my hands actually I like physical labor um and I'll, I'll give anything a go you know I do plumbing I do I do basic electric probably shouldn't shouldn't say that should I but yeah I love I love building stuff I love renovating how do you move what do you do to move what do you do to keep active so I go to the gym uh, three times a week um, you know a lot of that's been virtual in the last year but um, I go to the gym um, I bought a bike when I moved into this house and I cycle to work um, and I walk uh, do my Sunday walks and I try and do at least you know I, I like to get out and I walk at least once a day what do you do to celebrate um, well you know I love a good pinot um, I, but look, it, to me, it's about surrounding yourself with people that you laugh with, you know. Um, it's just popping around to a friend's and just having an impromptu Sunday afternoon wine. Beautiful. You know? I've got a mate coming around now and we're going to crack a bottle of wine, which would be really nice. Good on you. How do you enjoy self-care? What do you, what do, you do for self-care, things that you look forward to? Coffee. Coffee. wise Coffee. Coffee. You and I are so alike. Red wine and coffee. I have my coffee in the. So I've got this routine now, which I've had since the start of the pandemic, where I go and get two buckets of coffee every morning, and um and and you know I probably have six if I allowed myself to. But that first coffee, oh my god, it's oh, just, it's it's just nectar. Yeah, well, yeah. I actually because I'm I've been living in Italian Italy for so long, what I do in the morning is I put the mocha on. You know the Violetta yeah. mocha. And I smell it and oh, I just love that. Yeah, don't, don't <laughs> some, some quick fire questions. Who do you admire for having great habits and behaviours around well-being, And what do they do? Uh, so it's a friend of mine called Genevieve. Um, she works for a big company here in Australia. And she's probably one of the most thoughtful people I know about personal care, like self-care. Um, you know, I, I always say whenever I spend time with her, God, I'm so shallow compared to you. She's just got this way of thinking about mental health and well-being and then practicing it in her own life. And it's not about meditation or that kind of stuff. She actually, I can't really describe what it is, but she's always sending me these little fragments of thought that really make me think, for example. Um, and you know she, she's just, she's just lovely and she's a great leader of people and she's a great leader of culture and she asks difficult questions and she challenges me and yeah I just love it to bits oh, it sounds like a leader for the future right she's a leader now yeah what are you reading um 
Um, I've got about three books on the go at the moment, um, a, an autobiography um, by a sports person. I've got um, Phosphorescence by Julia Baird, and I've got a collection of essays, which is edited by a politician here in Australia called Tanya Plibersek um, uh, about, you know, what next in terms of the pandemic. So I'm kind of, kind of dipping in and out of all of them. I've, I've kind of found it really hard to focus on reading um, during the pandemic, actually. What what's, uh, are you listening to? Do you listen to podcast or music? Um, I've rediscovered Powderfinger. Oh. Just just been rocking out to Powderfinger. Nice. Um, I've and I'm listening to and this is shameless, I guess, plug for Beyond Blue. But we've just launched our second podcast series called Not Alone which uh, features um, six of our amazing speakers um, from all walks of life. And they talk about, you know, their journeys and overcoming trauma and overcoming suicide attempts and um, living self-acceptance and sexuality and living with chronic pain. And they're just the most incredibly moving but uplifting stories and and you know so not alone it's you know probably all your usual places and and they're Auslan interpreted so you know the deaf community can access them cool. and we won an award for the first series last year and this is the second series and I'm just popping that in my ears at the moment and getting very inspired beautiful what keeps you awake at night I worry about my staff and I'm worried about the community the level of mental distress that's out there and that we know is going to be around us for a long time what do you think's an open mind curiosity you know the the opening your mind um to to new ideas that that challenge your existing beliefs i i think curiosity you know just, it's such an underrated quality and i totally agree who should i interview next um, there's a guy who runs the Reach Out, the organisation that I that I mentioned, the Youth Mental Health. His name's Ashley De Silva. Um, he's yeah. a CEO there. He's amazing. I love him to bits. Best hair in the business. Um, and also, I've come. A, a, a got a con I got a DM the other day from a guy called Ben Crow, who's Ash Barty's the tenor, you know, Australian tennis player's Ash Barty's mind coach. Oh wow. And he's he's fascinating. Like I've I, you know, we're going to meet up for coffee and have a chat. But he's he's the way he goes about doing what he does is extraordinary. And I just think he's got a really interesting take on the power of this thing, the power yeah. of the mind, and how you know, obviously at elite sports level, but also just at an individual level, how this can make or break you. You know, you've been absolutely amazing. Do you have any closing messages for the listeners? Um, I go back to something I said earlier, vulnerability is your superpower as a person um, and, and social support is our collective superpower. If we can get keep on to the sense of community that we've had to reimagine and rethink about um, during the pandemic and we can make sure that we don't leave people behind, that when we're looking after the, the poorest and the most vulnerable in our community, if we can do that well, we all do better. I think COVID needs to be, and, you know, just your thoughts there, COVID needs to be a restart for the positive. Absolutely. You know, I totally believe that. 
Georgie, you're a legend. Thank you um, for your time. I know how busy you are and giving me probably more than an hour. I probably took more of more time than I should, but thank you for your time. I cannot wait to come and visit. Hopefully when this uh, when this little problem we have called COVID goes away, I will I will bring you a very, very good bottle of red wine. And oh, we'll together. John, and I'll buy your coffee. How about that? Beautiful. Done. Thank you for your time. Amazing. Pleasure, John. You take care. You too. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Open Minded. If you like the podcast, make sure to subscribe. This podcast is everywhere you get your podcasts, so make sure you do that. I don't need to tell you how, and then you'll get my new episode straight away. And if you can leave a review, tell everyone you know about it, it'd be awesome. If you could help spread the word about the show, thanks. But also, I'd love to get your feedback. You know, I'm new to this. I want to get better and I want to know what you want to know about mental well-being. So please reach out to us and thanks. And I'll see you all soon.